Well, hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Maria Wickvilla and Caroline Diarty Edwards. As I always mention, Caroline was a former admissions director at NCOD and a co-founder of Fortuna Admissions, the MBA admissions consulting firm. And Maria is the founder of Applicant Lab. We have another ranking. This is really, you know, probably the most watched and viewed ranking and as a result, the most influential. It is only U.S.-centric. It's uh, U.S. News and World Report. And there's some kind of interesting disclosures in this new ranking that just came out. Among them, Chicago Booth and Wharton are tied for number one, dislodging Stanford uh, from last year's ranking. Stanford ends up in, uh, in a tie for third place with Northwestern Kellogg. And Harvard continues to languish in fifth place, actually tied with a nearby rival MIT Sloan. Some of the other interesting uh, things, Yale, it comes in at number seven, which is the highest rank in the US news survey for Yale ever. Uh, Columbia is eight, tied with Berkeley for eight. Uh, Michigan raises, uh, well, goes up three spots and pokes into the top 10 at the uh, 10th place mark. So, should anyone take this seriously is one big question. The second question is, let's face it, if you're admitted to Stanford or Harvard, the number three and number five school, would you ever go to the number one school? Maria, what do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it depends what your goals are and which student culture resonates more with you. But yeah, I don't, you know. I think there are always exceptions. Like I, I, I do have someone who once got into Harvard and Kellogg, but had uh, their spouse had a career in Chicago and they had family in Chicago. And so Kellogg actually made the most sense, even though Harvard was, you know, the school that they were more attracted to. But I mean, I don't know. I, I think, I don't think that anyone would, would go to, would look at in a position like that would look at the number rankings and be like, Oh, wow, I got into Stanford, but it's number three. And so I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I, I find that hard to believe. And I don't think I've ever just sort of anecdotally, that doesn't really pass the the gut check test. If you, if you have clients and, and I'm sure Caroline, I'd love to hear Caroline's uh, take on this too, but like, I, I don't have any clients who, who would ever say like, oh man, I got into Harvard, but whoa, it's fifth now in the US news rankings. I guess I'm going to go to Kellogg instead. Like, no, not to diss on Kellogg. I'm just randomly choosing one of the ones that's ranked ahead of it. Uh, but that's, I just, it just doesn't pass the the gut check test for me. Yeah. And I'm not going to diss on any of the, the uh, yeah. on Chicago or Wharton or Kellogg. No, they're all like incredible. They're all incredible schools. All they're all like just amazing. But if, if you're accepted by Harvard or Stanford, it would take even more than a free ride at Booth, Kellogg, or Wharton to go there. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, I would pay the tuition at Harvard and Stanford in full instead of a full ride at, at any of those other schools. That's me. Caroline, what about you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think that, you know, there's not a lot to choose between the schools, right? So what matters to the schools is which cluster they're in, right? Are they in the top 10 or are they in the top 25 or are they in the top 50, right? There's, there are clusters of schools and there's so little to choose between the, the schools in a particular cluster that it doesn't really make much difference, right? So 
And I think the value of the rankings is also that they they collect some interesting data. So, you know, as we've discussed before, I, I don't think people should take the rankings at face value, but the way to use them is to sort of dig into the methodology and look at the data they're collecting. And there's, a, there's you know, it's very interesting to see some of the data points and it's important for candidates to, to dig into that and figure out, you know, what is important to them, which criteria are of value to them over other criteria and, and you know that that data collection is is a really valuable exercise but at the end of the day you know the methodology every methodology has you know certain biases in it and you know you have to decide you know which data points and and which criteria really really are of value to to you and you know I was reading your article this morning John about the results and I think you overestimate how much the top schools care about this. You know, I was reading what you were saying about, you know, Stanford, they're going to be heartbroken. Well, no, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But, but, I think they're fine. Um, yeah. You know, I don't think they care that much no. about this. I think that schools further down the rankings do care more about it because it can have more impact on them. But honestly, I don't think GSB and HBS are going to be taking a huge amount of notice yeah. of this. You know, I know that sometimes the alumni and students get worked up about it, but the schools understand that this is a game, that it's, uh, you know, it, it's an exercise in, in creating page views for the publisher. And therefore, you know, it's a huge moneymaker, right, for the, for the publisher of the ranking. So. Yeah. Um, so it, it's an exercise in, um, you know, churning this out every year to create a story and, and create a lot of traffic and therefore, um, uh, you know, create revenue for, for the publisher. And, and, the, and the top schools, you know, they, they, they don't care that much about, you know, exactly which position they have in this ranking. And fundamentally, it doesn't change um, how they're perceived in the market. So, yeah, no, I would, I would generally, generally agree with that. I think. The, the problem is there are a lot of misinformed would-be applicants and applicants who look at this and think that there's more credibility to it than really there is. So let, let, let's just get into some of the data, which is kind of interesting. So Stanford has uh, almost always has the lowest acceptance rate, but this year, based on this data, it's extremely low. It's 6.2%. That is, to put into perspective, nearly one-third the rate um, that Wharton posted and nearly one-quarter the rate that Chicago Booth posted, even though those schools are higher ranked. Stanford also has the highest GPA of uh, the incoming classes, 3.78, the highest GMAT, in fact, the highest GMAT ever posted for an MBA program, 738, and yet it falls behind Chicago, Wharton, and is in the tie with Kellogg which is just almost unbelievable. So why can that possibly be so? Let me explain. It turns out that when US News determines what the starting salaries and sign-on bonuses are for the latest graduating class, uh, they only look at exactly what I said, the base pay and the sign-on bonus. They don't look at any uh, long-term or guaranteed first-year compensation. They don't look at equity awards. And it turns out, of course, that because Stanford is located in the heart of Silicon Valley, equity plays a fairly significant part in the first-year packages of many of their MBAs. I believe as many as 20% of them end up with equity packages. So if you actually looked at total comp 
There's no way Stanford would have been beaten by Chicago, Wharton, and tied with uh, Kellogg. So it, it's it's a function of the methodology, the quirks in the methodology that pushes Stanford out of first place. It, it's, it's worth noting uh, these details because that, that explains why you get these weird anomalies that are almost otherwise unexplainable. It turns out, in fact, that the school that posted the highest compensation number for their recent graduates is NYU Stern. It's not even Harvard or Chicago or Wharton. And how is that possible? Well, it turns out that NYU funnels a higher percentage of their graduates into only two fields. In fact, two-thirds of all the students at NYU go into consulting or finance. And those are the fields that pay the most money. So you could argue that, well, look, the the variety of industries that their graduates are going into is not nearly as great as it is at other schools. And therefore, uh, those other schools are penalized by it, uh, according to this methodology. So there are a lot of quirks like that. And once, once you get under the hood of these ranking systems, you can explain away some of the weird and uh, odd results. Maria, did you, see, did you see any other like quirky results in here? I don't know that I saw a lot of quirky results because at the end of the day, like we're, we're talking about, I, I think Caroline and both of you have made this point before that we're talking about like the, dif- the difference of what would be thousandths of a second in a, in a road race, right? Yes, <laughs> like, that's we're not, really true. You know, a seven, a seven thirty-seven versus a seven thirty-four, or whatever. Like, I mean, you're still talking huge percentile, very difficult score to get. So, it's not so much that. I think what one of the things that's interesting to me is that you know Caroline used the word game a little bit earlier, and I think that that's a really great way to talk about it because I do feel that many schools, especially those that feel that their rankings, their rank does not accurately reflect what it should be. Uh, I think many of them have been playing the game. They're playing a long game. I think it's taken them a while. But, you know, for example, um, in the past, I've mentioned that I have noticed anecdotally that Yale has been putting over the past decade or so much more emphasis on a GMAT score versus, say, more touchy-feely types of aspects of a candidacy. So they used to be more known as the social enterprise school. They have been desperately trying to get out of that stereotype uh, it's been a lot harder to get into Yale, especially so someone who would have gotten in 15 years ago, hands down, let's say so, someone who was like in a position to teach for America, driving great change in the social enterprise sector. But say with a 700 GMAT, I feel like a person like that might have gotten in pretty easily 15 years ago. And now if they have a 700 or a 680 or something, they would not get in. So I think to the extent that it is a game, I think there are some schools in particular that are trying to play towards the the boundaries of that game. Uh, I think Yale has, I suspect Yale has been doing it with GMAT. And to be clear, like there's nothing against Yale. I I love the Yale first year curriculum. I think all business schools should follow what they do. I think it's wonderful how they do it. Uh, And I think Yale as a, as a global, the overall institution reputation globally can't be matched. I, I remember when I got into business school, one of my colleagues had gone to Yale for business school and, you know, someone else who was not from the U.S. was like, oh, well, Maria, did you did you also or what you didn't get into Yale? And I'm like, well, I didn't really apply because, you know, back then it was it was perhaps not quite as elite. Um, the other way I think one of the schools might be playing the game is I do believe that I've seen booths giving out tremendous amount of scholarships. So if someone if someone gets into a Wharton uh, or a Harvard, I think they do. I think Booth has been very generous with 
giving enormous scholarships to lure away that talent. And again, it's a long-term game, right? Because you give that person the scholarship and you hope that two years from now, they're going to get that higher uh, paying job, that they're going to, you're going to attract the person with a higher GMAT. But I do believe that all of that, whether or not that's a deliberate practice on Booth's part to try to game the rankings, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to that because I think also to Caroline's earlier point, I don't think the elite schools really shouldn't care <laughs> too much about this. Like, believe in yourself, man. Like, your program is great. <laughs> you don't have to worry about whether you're first or third or eighth. Um, but those are the two schools in particular that I feel have been have been trying to change themselves subtly and change the composition of their classes using uh, various tools at their disposal. Yeah, and Chicago has a lot of money. I mean, it's it's worth uh, noting that Chicago is a school that received the largest single gift in history uh, from a donor, David Booth, which the school is named after. He originally gave $350 million uh, to Booth. Much of that money is unrestricted uh, and is being poured into scholarship aids. And in fact, the actual value of the gift that has exceeded over $500 million because uh, it was given in the form of a dividend stream. So Booth has money to spare uh, to go shopping for high GMAT scores and, and, and frankly, more women in particular, because Booth historically had a little bit of trouble as more, more of a quant school with the gender gap issue than, than some other institutions. Caroline, your take on some of these issues? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if they will realize that there is an issue in the methodology here. As you mentioned, John, that um, schools like Stern are benefiting from the fact that a large chunk of the class go into consulting and finance and and therefore, uh, you know, they're benefiting from those high salaries and it's not taking into account the opportunities that that Stanford and, and Harvard graduates are getting that actually might not come the way of certain graduates, right? And the, and the choices that those graduates are making. So I think that's a flaw now in the methodology. And I wonder if, you know, they, they might be thinking about how to change that because, you know, it, it's not accurately reflecting actually the opportunities that, that graduates are getting. And we see it in the comments on, on the Poets and Cons website and, and the comments that people are making, as you say, you know, people take it at face value and they're saying, you know, oh, maybe, you know, why are people looking but why do people think so highly of Stanford and Harvard, you know, because people actually aren't earning as much as graduates coming out of other schools, right? So they are taking it at face value. And I think that, you know, that that is an issue with the rankings. So maybe they need to rethink the methodology there. Um, and, you know, people also need to keep in mind that there are limits to the rankings and it's also not necessarily measuring it can't measure everything, right? It's not measuring everything that people value. They can't measure the culture at a school. They're not measuring, you know, you, there's an interesting comment in one of your articles about the ranking about how Stanford does a wonderful job of attracting people who are extremely passionate about something and, 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 and you know, the community that that creates. And I think Stanford also does a very good job of attracting people who really want to you know, have a positive impact and, and really care about their impact on the world. And that's not something that that is is captured in a ranking, right? So Only um, in there a negative are, way, right? Because it, it would, you know, if you want to work in a nonprofit, an NGO, uh, or frankly, in healthcare or consumer products, uh, you're going to get a lower salary than one that would go to consulting or 
uh, venture capital or private equity, or even in many cases, investment banking. So therefore you hurt your school by, by, by using your leadership uh, training uh, to, to do some good in the world at a nonprofit or NGO or even the government, uh, your school gets hurt. Yeah, which doesn't make sense, right? So, so there's clearly limit, limits to the rankings. Um, I mean, I, I would say that something that matters more than the, the sort of the year-to-year um, juggle of, of positions is the longer-term trend. And as you pick out, you know, Yale has risen over, over the years. And so, you know, that, that's interesting. And I think that's much more useful to look at than the sort of annual up and down that um, they use to sort of make, make a story. And then my other concern about this ranking is that, you know, it doesn't, it's only, it's very myopic, right? It's only looking at the US schools. There's a whole world out there that it's not even even considering. And I think that's rather an outdated view of the world now, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, um, it's uh, that's a that's a huge limit to this ranking that it's not taking into account actually the choices that the people are making um, when when they're looking at their graduate education and and it's a global market out there now um, and you know I, I I think that that's a, a a massive limitation of this ranking. It would help a lot if U.S. News actually made this ranking global because. You know, uh, look, the number the, the, the two most important rankings of the Financial Times and the U.S. News. And, and and I will say, I don't know if you agree with me on this, Caroline, but, you know, the FT has metrics in there that actually favor schools that enroll a larger percentage of their students and have a larger percentage of faculty who are considered international. And I have, you know, I, I totally get that. But what it does is it it. it, it 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 kind of gives gives some schools an advantage and other schools not. And what I'd like to see is you know just a more straightforward uh, global ranking that 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 doesn't purposely do that. Because uh, you know I can make the case that look uh, the United States is so big and so diverse that a student from the South is very different from the student student from the Northeast or the one in the Midwest, but yet it's all one country. And and you know, in the countries in Europe are the size of U.S. states. So they get tremendous credit for that in the FT ranking and and the U.S. schools get penalized. I'd like to see uh, a global ranking that just is is more straightforward and is not slanted toward other schools. And I think U.S. News would be in a position to do that. But you're right. Its view of the business school landscape is so myopic because it's 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 a global market and mm-hmm. and the US news should really recognize that particularly in business education that may be less true in law and uh, some other fields in medicine as well uh, because of all licensing uh, procedures that are required in in different countries but in business it is truly global and this has been a global market for quite some time now and yet uh, US news has its head in the sand in looking at this market only uh, from a U.S. lens, one of one of the kind of interesting things, and you know, this is not a major MBA program. This school enrolls roughly a class of about 150 people a year only, um, but it is in Boston, a big market, and the school that had the biggest collapse this year, a 30 place plunge, was Northeastern University. 
Now, I know a lot of our listeners may not necessarily consider Northeastern, but it's in a great city. It's, it's a good school, solid school. And this school plummeted 30 places to 85 on the list from 55. And what's kind of interesting, if you look at the, at the numbers, you might actually scratch your head about how in the world a school in one year can fall 30 places in a single year. So especially when it became more selective, accepting fewer applicants, especially when the average GMAT score of its incoming class increased by more than 35 points, and and the school even managed to get better grades from the corporate recruiters who were surveyed by U.S. News. So how in the world does the school fall? 30 places? Let me tell you, their pay and placement numbers were abysmal. Salary and bonus declined about 4%, a little over 4%. Uh, placement fell by nearly 10 percentage points, both at graduation and three months later. And it gives you a sense of how closely clustered these schools are because those three data points alone basically caused the fall and the collapse, particularly in a year when many schools are reporting record or near record starting paying job offers for their uh, MBAs last year. But man, that is punishing a 30 place fall. And, and this is a school where ranking would be far more consequential, right? Because people in the Boston area or people who are in, international but would love to be in Boston and they can't get into MIT and they can't get into Harvard and maybe even uh, Boston College and Boston University might be a stretch. Northeastern is a place to get you into that area. And they do have a, a good program and they're well known for their co op procedure of getting people jobs. This is very hurtful to a school like that, don't you think? Yeah, it does. It does have more of an impact, as you say, for, for the schools that are out of the sort of top 10, top 20. It, it, it does make a bigger difference. And it's unfortunate, as you say, that it's it's often a small difference that can cause such a dramatic fall. So, so in reality, you know, the school hasn't diminished in, in, in value <laughs> No. Um, in, in such a such a dramatic fashion and, and the ranking kind of exaggerates the there's a very exaggerated effect that plays out in the ranking which is very unfortunate for the school so um you know I'm, I'm sure that they are being very disappointed by this and and um you know it is rather unfair <laughs> really it really is the, the other kind of surprise in the ranking is you know you mentioned one of the benefits of, of a ranking really are the data points and the standardization of the data across a large sample of schools. And one surprise to me, frankly, is how it became more difficult for candidates to get into a highly selective MBA program. Uh, The acceptance rates uh, across the top 25 schools, it turns out that 21 of the top 25 schools admitted fewer applicants and shrank their class sizes in the past year, which, you know, there was a point there where we were thinking, wait, during the pandemic, uh, right after the first wave of big applicants, things had had gotten more down to normal and it was a good time to apply. Well, it turns out that uh, many of these schools have much lower acceptance rates than they had previously. Are you surprised that 21 of the top 25 business schools admitted fewer applicants last year, Maria? I'm not because I do think that the pandemic has fueled a larger interest in the MBA, I think as we've we've covered multiple times here. 
and yeah, I think they're just more interested in the MBA that equals more applicants, but it's not necessarily easy. You know, if a school gets 10% more applicants, they can't just easily increase the class size by 10%. And so I think that that, you know, I'm not necessarily surprised. I think, you know, a, a few years from now, we're going to be talking about how there's a decrease uh, in applications, <laughs> yes. right? Because it's so cyclical. It and is so, thing. yeah, we're just, we just happen to be sort of at the, at the, near the top of a, of a crest in terms of interest in business school and a couple of years from now, it'll it'll go down and then it'll go up again. And so I'm not necessarily all that surprised. Um, if I if I could, I'd like to bring up a, a point like we were talking about how myopic these rankings are. And I think if anything, the Demore Kim descent down to 85th or 86th or whatever it was, I think that's just it's excellent proof of just how silly these rankings are. Right. I, I think if, if anyone yeah. is like, well, you know, every time I listen to this podcast, you know, John, Caroline and Maria just talk about how the rankings are sort of silly. And but something like this should be a clear indicator to anyone listening that this is not <laughs> these rankings are not entirely very scientific. I mean, if if that's the right school for you, it's it's the right school for you. And I just don't understand if any, you know, hopefully that 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 rapid descent helps prove that they're not, this is not sort of an ironclad set in stone, true ranking of what the, what the program can give. And also as Caroline was saying earlier, the, the emphasis on the post MBA salary level is really quite silly. I mean, if you're in, you know, NYU is number one, but the cost of living in New York city is tremendously high. And I think we were talking, I think it was like a $1,400 difference between NYU and the next school below it. And that was like less than 1% of a difference. And the cost of living in New York City might be higher than 1% than the cost of living elsewhere. Um, and, and also I think that, you know, if you're if you're if that's the the metric that you're aiming to optimize for, then you are going to push your students to take jobs in consulting and finance, knowing that that's going to help your school in the longer term. I think it makes it a lot easier for a school's career services department if they know that they're going to try to push their students to take these very structured job, um, these jobs, very structured recruiting practices, as opposed to someone at Stanford who might be like, hey, I want to go work in venture capital as an unpaid apprentice for a year or something along those lines. I, I do wish that the school that the sorry, the rankings would question more something along the lines of graduate satisfaction. And I believe the Financial Times does do this. Uh, so, for example, I, I just when we were talking about the the salary levels, I remembered I had a, a client from a couple of years ago who got an offer in management consulting and also got an offer at Amazon or one of the big tech firms, and they chose the tech job because even though it paid something like thirty thousand dollars a year less, it the work, <laughs> the amount of work was also a lot less, and right. so for this person, life satisfaction mattered more than you know, they, they would gladly give up that $30,000 in compensation in order to not have to work hundred hours a week, excuse me. So, you know, I do, I also think that it's, it's just because a school doesn't send as many people to banking and consulting, it doesn't mean they couldn't. If Stanford students wanted to go into banking, if they wanted to go into consulting, I guarantee you hundred percent of them would probably oh, yeah. get, get those high paying jobs. But uh, I think when, yeah. when you go to the higher schools, you start to see that there's a bigger world out there and you start also start to think about, well, what, what matters to me? Right. I know that the, you know, I know that at Harvard, that was something that we talked about in first year in leadership class. It was part of the curriculum was to talk about, well, what are you going to prioritize in your life? And I think some of us, not me, but I think some people came into Harvard wanting to really focus on money, money, money. But then some of these lessons that we covered about life satisfaction made them rethink things. So anyway, the point is, I think 
I just think that the, the I think applicants should view these with suspicion. Something like the Demore Kim drop is is a clear indicator of like if someone yeah. can drop that far in only one year, isn't that sort of a suspicion that yeah, maybe it's not completely scientific? Yeah, exactly. You know, an, an, another really interesting data point connected to acceptance rates uh, is yield. And while this is not a metric that's used for the actual ranking, it is a metric that's available uh, if you buy. You got to buy. You know, you got to go behind a paywall to get this at U.S. News. But yield, which is basically for those who don't know, the percentage of admits who actually enroll. Right. So this is a this is a really interesting statistic, and I actually think it's it's very more revealing than many of the statistics that go into the ranking itself, because it basically says if you send an invite to a applicant, will the applicant actually come or will the applicant go somewhere else? And what's really interesting about the yield data this year is I believe for the first time ever, Stanford has a higher yield than Harvard Business School. Typically, Harvard is around 90%. And uh, Stanford's yield this past year is a record, 93.6%, which for Stanford, incidentally, is up from 82.3% the year before. Now, the 82% is probably a bit lower than, than typical because, remember, there were a bunch of international applicants who had trouble coming into the United States during the pandemic due to travel restrictions and other issues. But 93.6% is really, really high. Caroline, that is a yield number that any admissions officer would drool over. Am I right? Yeah, yes. And I think that's something that the schools care about much more than their position in the US news (laughs) ranking. Um, These schools, in any case, I'm sure that that they're, they're monitoring that very carefully. But I'm not surprised that Stanford has a bit of a higher yield than Harvard. I mean, it's also related to class size, right? Stanford has a much smaller class size. Sure. Um, Harvard has to admit a lot more people and that can create a bit more sort of volatility in, in um, so, so and, and the numbers, they're so, they're so little between them, right? I mean, it's not a, I don't think you can read too much in, in, um, into those, those differences, but yeah, yeah. I mean, schools certainly, the, the top schools do, do monitor the yield very, very carefully. I think there are a number of people who go to Stanford because the acceptance rate at Stanford is half of that of Harvard. And, and you know, for some people, that's, that's a factor. I don't think it should be a factor. But uh, if you can say you went to the most highly selective MBA program in the world that only accepts roughly 6% of its applicants, that matters to some people. It shouldn't, but it does. I mean, I like to think that the sort of person who gets into Stanford is not the sort of person who would go around later on saying, I got into the school with the highest acceptance rate. <laughs> like I like to I like to think that their admissions office would would cut people out of the of the pool if they got the sense that that was why they were going there. I think I think many years ago I visited uh, Stanford and, and Kirsten Moss said something along the lines of like, we're looking for people who would come here even if we weren't ranked number one or number 10 or number like we're looking for people who would come here regardless of what our ranking is, that they would because they want to take such advantage of the very unique resources that we offer. And I think that that's a really insightful way to put it. And, and speaking of yield, I think in the absence of any other data point, I do think that yield is probably one of the best best metrics to look at, right? Because that's where the rubber hits the road, right? That's when you have to make, you have to write out that check to make that deposit 
<laughs> and you have to move to the city to go there and you have to actually put your money where your mouth is. And so I do think that looking at yield, if we had to look at one of these quantifiable metrics, for me, yield, I think would be the most relevant one to look at. That having been said, as we were talking about games earlier, I do know that some of the schools do play games with yield. Again, to be clear, I love Kellogg. I know you're like, why does she keep saying things about Kellogg? I will say something good about Kellogg in a second, but I do know that Kellogg recently in the past year or two has started doing something where, first of all, they put a lot of people on the wait list, people who are very strong. And then they get, so what happens is someone gets put on the wait list at Kellogg early in the cycle. And so they're depressed, but then they get into Wharton. Right. And I feel like sometimes, sometimes I think, and I can't prove this, but it feels to me like very strong candidates get actually get waitlisted at Kellogg because then they get into Stanford, they get into Wharton, they get into Harvard. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, I got waitlisted at Kellogg, but I got into Harvard. How does that work? And I'm like, because they probably assumed that you'd be getting in there. And the other thing is that I know that Kellogg has started doing something where they will call people who are on the waitlist and say, oh, we want to have sort of a little conversation with you, just sort of a, a chat. And then during that call, they will say, like, if we offer you, I mean, I don't think they put it quite this bluntly, but if we offer you a place, are you going to take it? Because that yield number, if I don't actually formally make an offer to someone, they don't, that doesn't count against my yield number. But if I call someone and I say, hey, if I make you this offer tomorrow, are you going to take it? And that person says, yes, then I know they're a guaranteed person that is going to positively impact my yield number. And so I think it's it like with any of these quantifiable metrics, there are definitely ways to game it. Sure. But in terms of also, like we've been talking a little bit about like, well, since these rankings are so crazy, how do we choose what school is best for you? And I, I think that this is where, you know, Caroline mentioned, mentioned culture. I think this is also where just doing your research is going to yield dividends that are incredibly useful. So not just talking to students about the culture, but really digging into the electives and the career reports, because there's a dramatic difference, you know, both Booth and Kellogg, highly ranked schools, both in Chicago, but let's say you're interested in healthcare, right? Booth's healthcare offerings are not surprisingly a little bit more quantitative than that at those of Kellogg, right? They have like a healthcare analytics lab, for example, versus Kellogg actually has two different tracks for healthcare people. Kellogg actually has a track for people who are interested in the commercialization of new products, but they also have a track for people who are interested in the payer system. That is to say the, the ecosystem of hospitals and insurance companies and all of that. And so if you're truly interested in healthcare, you might look at those electives and say, wow, those they're, they're both healthcare, but they target slightly different facets of healthcare. And then when you dig deeper and then look into the career numbers, you see that Kellogg sends, sends about 6% of its graduating class into healthcare versus Booth sends about 3%. So that should also give you a sense of like, hold up, if I really want to make my career in healthcare, even if I get into Booth, which is the number one school, and Kellogg is quote unquote only number three or whatever it came out at this year, right. maybe Kellogg might be the better choice. Because oh. if a greater percentage of the class is going into healthcare, that means they probably have greater ties with healthcare recruiters. It means the alumni base is probably stronger in healthcare. Therefore, when I'm looking for jobs later, my the alumni network is going to be stronger. And so these are the sorts of nuances that an overall ranking number is never going to be able to capture. So I think that's another reason why, as a candidate, sure, use the ranking as a starting point. Why not use it as a quick gut check? You know, if you've got a 620 GMAT, Maybe, maybe not necessarily, but maybe Stanford's not going to work out for you. Although it might, like if you've if you've done something truly remarkable with your life, trust me, they'll still take you no matter what. Um, but really, start digging into those nuances to find the school that's best for you, because there's no way one of these overall rankings could ever possibly capture that. That's a really good point, and and you know, 
a doubling in the size of people going to healthcare in the case of Chicago and Kellogg also tells you, you know, you get, you get a bigger tribe of people uh, who are more like you with similar ambitions. Uh, and therefore, as you point out, a, a bigger network uh, that's going to help you throughout your uh, career in that field uh, once you graduate from it. Besides, you're going to be better prepared because of the, the greater offerings uh, in the elective part of the catalog, course catalog, which is really interesting. Now, on acceptance rates, I mentioned that Stanford was at 6.2%. The number two school was not Harvard. It was MIT Sloan, 121 Harvard was not far behind, 12.5. Columbia, 15.7. Berkeley was at 17.6. In all, 10 schools reported acceptance rates below 20%. In 2020, only four schools had acceptance rates below 20%. And this is interesting, 27 schools were below 30%. Last year, only 18 were. So that just gives you a a sense of how uh, much more selective the schools have become uh, as their applicant pools have swelled. And that's fascinating to me, it really is. Well, any last words, Caroline? <laughs> well, I mean, this publisher was the first, I think, to start collecting data, wasn't it, on selectivity. So, you know, application volume, admits and so on. And I think that it has driven this behavior, um, you know, not just amongst business schools, but, you know, also across all graduate education and undergraduate, where the schools are looking to drive application volume purely for the purposes of looking more selective, right? And and it doesn't say anything about the quality of the program. That's true. What it says is that people are, you know, people are applying to more schools than they used to. Right. Um, so, so it's it to me that's very artificial, and as Maria said, I think the yield is a much more, much more valuable indicator of where where the value lies rather than the the application volume and selectivity. Yeah, because that's that's a true market number, right? Um, it, it reflects informed choices made by students. And at this level, who are pretty fully informed about the market and where they want to go. And so if a, a student gets accepted into three programs and chooses one over the other two, that's valuable information to have. And it's probably far more interesting data uh, and helpful data to determine the, the, the status, the reputation of a school and its ability to draw the best applicants than most of the other metrics that are used in the ranking. I mean, another, you know, really, I think, valuable uh, metric in many cases are the size of a school's endowment, because the greater resources that a school has, particularly per student, tells you a lot about what they can invest in the program, uh, how much scholarship money they can give, uh, what kind of faculty they can attract and retain. So that's a valuable measure of the quality of a given school and its program. And that's, that's a metric that's never included in any ranking. So there are a lot of things that are, that are not measured that are probably far more important to a would-be applicant than those things that can be measured. And as both of my co-hosts pointed out, how do, how do you accurately reflect the culture of an institution or the full elective offerings of an institution and how that may 
make your MBA experience more valuable to you. None of these things are factored into a ranking, and they and it's it's understandable why they they aren't because it's hard to get your hands around that in a very tangible way with a single number. Anyway, there you have it. So you know, here it is. Look at the look at the report that we published on poets and quants. We've done two. We've done the ten. Uh, most surprising insights or uh, shocks in the current ranking, as well as their analysis uh, of the full ranking in uh, the story that came out on the day the rankings were released. Uh, and make up your own mind. You know, uh, in many cases, these rankings are, are more uh, an opportunity to look at the underlying data and select what's important to you. And I think that that's the greater value than who is ranked number one, who's ranked five, who's ranked 10th, 20th, or 30th. Take it with a big grain of salt. That's what I got to say. You know, one thing I wanted to add in terms of the acceptance rate is that I think that that's also can be manipulated. For example, many schools have been offering GMAT waivers. So people do not have to take the GMAT and they can still apply. And I think for many people, the GMAT or the GRE is a huge stumbling block. And so if I'm a school and I'm trying to drive my acceptance rate down, the easiest way to do that is to drive my, my admissions numbers up. And an easy way to do that is to say, well, guess what? You don't have to take the GMAT now. You can, you can apply even without the GMAT, right? Because that makes things suddenly a lot easier. And so I think that that might be uh, a, a reason if you look at some of the acceptance rates from school to school, from year to year, that could be one of the explanations. Uh, and also there are some schools that really do try to, um, you know, they, they are, their applications are much more focused on do you really love me as a school? So for example, uh, I think Columbia has like a completely separate essay about like, or it's an option at least, like why New York? Why Columbia? Why are we the number one school for you? Uh, and even in their interview, they're sort of famous for routinely asking like, well, which other schools have you applied to? And oh, if you get into one of those, are you going to go there? So, <laughs> so I think that there are just lots of ways to, to manipulate that. But I wouldn't be surprised if schools you know, if a school is is smart about this and they really do want to drive the applicant incoming applicant numbers up, the easiest way to do that is to start offering GMAT waivers. And then that acceptance rate and therefore perceived selectivity is going to go down, even though the actual selectivity of getting into that program is perhaps not really changed. Yeah, really good point. Maria, Caroline, thank you so much for really a, a great session and really important insights on how one should put this uh, discount uh, on on any given ranking. This is John Byrne with Poets of Quants. You've been listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast. 